coach gives the, the game time speech. The game time speech. It's, a, it's to get them hyped up. It's to, and they might use some type of example. This actually happened. I went to Houghton High School, which is a town up in north Louisiana. And when I was a senior, our football team went to the playoffs. And we, the second round of the playoffs, got to play John Curtis. John Curtis. Now, there's a big difference between Houghton and John Curtis, right? Houghton, they, like, lift the weights. At John Curtis, they eat the weights. It's that kind of difference. So you just got a, a different league there. But before the game, our pastor, the church I went to, was the chaplain for the team. And so I'd gone down to the game with some friends. I wasn't actually playing, uh, <laughs> clearly. But... <coughs> But the coach had given the, the speech beforehand, and he told the story of David and Goliath. You know, you've got Goliath and John Curtis, and, um, and then you have David and Houghton. And then he gave everyone a rock, you know, just to really get them psyched and thinking, man, we, we can do this. We can be David. We can be David's men. They weren't. Um, Goliath won. Goliath conquered 40 to nothing that game. But it, it was the, it's the game time speech. It's getting them pumped up and, and trying to get them to, but they have to go out there and do something, right? You can't just give the speech and then just go. I mean, you've got to get them hyped up, and then they've got to go do it. They have to fight to win the game. I tell that because Paul has given a, a speech, somewhat of a pumped up speech. He said, this is what Christ did. Christ set the example for us. Christ humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death. Not only death, but death on a cross. And then he's going to follow in verse 12 with, Therefore, therefore, Christ has done it. Now you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. So Paul has given us the speech. And then we come to verses 12 through 18 this morning, and the main point I hope we see, I hope you'll take out the notes that are in your bulletin we provided for you, and the main point I hope we see this morning is that living worthy of the gospel requires God-empowered effort. Living worthy of the gospel requires God-empowered effort. Now, the living worthy of the gospel, that, it's been a while since we used that phrase, right? That was all the way back in chapter 1. Well, that's still where Paul's headed. He's continuing to give instruction on how we as God's people are to live worthy of the gospel, to represent Christ. So I hope you'll, will you stand with me now and we'll read verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, questioning, as it says in the versions that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of pure faith. I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me when you see me. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to understand this exhortation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, may your spirit instruct us this morning and not only instruct us, but we know that if you give us instruction, Father, you also provide us with the strength to accomplish it. So God, may we be resolved as we come together this morning and sit under the teaching of your word that when we leave here, we will be obedient. We will change in whatever way your word instructs us. Thank you for the grace you have provided in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have endured the race for us and that you have accomplished the work for our salvation and have set us an example of obedience. In your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Living worthy of the gospel requires God-empowered effort. Paul instructs us in verses 12 through 13 to work out our salvation. What does this mean to work out our salvation? Well, letting go and letting God. That's a phrase that we use often, right? Let go and let God. Friends, it's not entirely a biblical idea. We're not to just let go and let God do everything. Now, this is kind of a theological tightrope that we have to walk here. It can be very difficult because we don't want to think that we're taking our salvation into our own hands. When it says work out your salvation, it's, it's meaning you're working out what God has already done in you. You see, salvation is the gift of God in which he forgives us of all of our trespasses against him. He forgives us of our sins and redeems us and then makes us capable of obeying him. You see, Salvation is not a license to sin. It's not relieving us of our obedience, as one pastor said, but it makes our obedience possible. This is what salvation is. So God has saved us. He's redeemed us, forgiven us of our sins, and he even does that daily as we repent. As Mr. Al mentioned in his prayer this morning, God's mercies are new day by day. And so likewise, we should be repenting. It's experiencing God's salvation as a present activity as he forgives us of our sins constantly and makes us new. But we are to work it out. What does that, what does that mean? Well, we're responding to what God has done. This is what all gift giving and receiving is like, right? When someone gives us a gift, usually hopefully, hopefully it's free and they're not expecting something in return. But they give you a gift, but then you have to do something with it, right? I mean, all the best gifts are those that, that you were able to use. I mean, have you actually found a gift that you love that you didn't use? No, those are the gifts you stick off in the corner. You politely say thank you, but you know you're not going to use it. And those are the gifts you don't appreciate as much. But the gifts that you love the most and you appreciate the most are the ones that you use. And sometimes they even take work. I wanted to... I actually received a gift, gift this week, and some people think I'm just obsessed. I am obsessed with coffee, just so you know. I love that as a gift. But I, I received this this week. This is actually a unique kind of coffee maker thing. And I had not used one before, but my wife got it for me as a gift. 
And so this week, I had to learn how to use it. And it wasn't just like a normal coffee maker. I, I realized that the grind, it had to be ground a bit differently. And then, I, so I got it ground a, a bit differently, but then that didn't work so well. The coffee wasn't quite strong enough. And so I had to do it a little bit differently. And then I even had to go on the internet and read up on how best to use it and how to get the right coffee, the right taste. And so it took some time. It took some effort, but... Just in ca- I'm not getting money for this, but it makes good coffee, and now I've figured it out. But the, the point is that it was a gift that took effort to use, and this is what salvation is like. It is a gift that we've received freely, but then to really experience it, we need to work it out. Listen to Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. It says, His, meaning God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, that's Jesus, to his glory and excellence. But then listen to what Peter said. So he said, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But then it says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and so on. You see, what, you see what the Bible is saying? There's this tension, and if you ever dissolve this tension, then you, you've messed something up. God has given us His grace and His salvation, but that means we are to live worthy of that salvation. We are to walk in it. We are to be sanctified. That means set apart, changed, reflecting the likeness of Christ. But it takes effort. It takes work. And so Paul is calling us to work out that salvation. Then he says, with fear and trembling. These are the accompanying emotions to working out our salvation. They they just mean being all for it. To work out your salvation with these emotions of fear and trembling, it just means that you're in awe that God, the God of the universe who created all things, the one who is holy, who is beyond any imperfection, has worked in your life and continues to work in your life personally for salvation, that he loves you. And so you are responding to him in fear and trembling, in this sense of awe that God's working in you. The one who created the universe and could destroy it at any moment is the one who's working in you. And so there's a sense of fear and trembling that should go along with that, along with your obedience. But then verse 13 And this is where the tension is really. We're supposed to be obedient, but it says in verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I can't dissolve this tension for you. It doesn't need to be dissolved. But somehow while we're working, God's really working. He's working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this aspect of will is just, it's something we don't need to brush over because what it means is that while we are following God's commands, it's not just this list of rules and it's not, uh, it, it's not frustrating sometimes because God has also, while it is frustrating, hear me out, God has transformed our hearts so that we not only are doing a list of rules, but we, we want to. You see, we, we have a new want to about it. When God redeems us, he, he will transform our hearts so that we want to do His will. It's, it's not always a frustrating thing, but it brings us joy to do His will. 
This is what it means that God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not just this dry thing where we just, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it because that's what God wants. No, it's God, I want to please you. I hope your heart is being transformed in that way where to walk in him is, is a delight for you. Living worthy of the gospel requires this God-empowered effort. He's empowering, but we're, we're putting forth effort. There's going to be some sweat, some tears on our part. The main points I want us to look at, because what Paul does in 14 through 18, is he, he draws us out a little more, and he just said, here's, here's the practical ways that you do this. Here's some real practical things. So what he's going to say is, living worthy of the gospel is going to require us to work joyfully, these are, this is going to be our first point. Living worthy of the gospel requires us to hold fast to the word, to the word of life. Hold fast to the word faithfully. And then lastly, we will look at living worthy of the gospel requires us to serve sacrificially. All these things require effort, but this is what God has called us to do in working out our salvation. The first aspect, living worthy of the gospel requires us to work joyfully. I love these verses. I, there, there's no one in here this can't apply to. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, complaining, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Could Paul have been more general? Uh, just for a laugh, how many of you complained this week? If you don't raise your hand, you're lying. Right? Come on, everybody. Everybody raise your hand or raise both. Living worthy of the gospel requires us to work joyfully rather than with grumbling and rather than with complaining. The grumbling is, is, is the aspect of voicing our complaints. I mean, some of us, we don't have any trouble sharing what we feel, right? We're going to voice it. We're going to let people know how we feel about what they're doing. And then the, the second word is actually, it's disputing, but it actually means this inner rejection where we may not voice it, but it's in our hearts. And so it's really a comprehensive thing where Paul's saying, wh whether it's outward and you're just telling people how, how you feel and you're complaining, or even it, you're trying to use the excuse, well, I'm not saying it, I'm just thinking it, it's not an excuse. Paul said, whether it's inner or it's outward, it, this do all things without the spirit of grumbling or complaining. These are, these are timeless troubles, right? And so actually, when Paul says this, it's quite remarkable. These are the exact same words that are used in reference to Israel in the wilderness. The exact same words. Listen to Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 3. These are uh, there in your notes. The entire company of Israelites murmured against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread in the full, for you have brought us out into this desert to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The children of Israel were murmuring. They were complaining. And in Hebrews 3.19, it says that they were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. You're, here's the root issue with murmuring and complaining. There are two things we want to point out, why they're so problematic. First, Paul is urging the people in Philippi to think alike, right? This is what he said in the beginning of verse 2, of chapter 2. Have the same mind, right? 
And then he also said that they would be humble, thinking of others more significantly than they think of themselves. When we complain, it destroys the unity among us. And so just like it's, it's such a contagious thing, murmuring, complaining. If one person complains, then it, it allows everybody else to kind of say what they've been feeling all along, right? And so this is what happened in the, among the children of Israel. They all started complaining at once, and it just destroyed the obedience, the faithfulness of the people, and to where unbelief was rampant among them. And so, first of all, the first issue with complaining and murmuring is that it destroys our unity. When you complain among yourself, then all of us are just divided. And then secondly, there's a lack of faith involved in complaining and murmuring. It says they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You see, what complaining does is it reflects what's going on in our hearts. We don't trust God. Those become the root issues. When you complain, it's because you don't trust God enough that he will handle things. And so you think you have to take care of it yourself. They need to know what I think. Because that's the only way things are going to get right. And so complaining, murmuring, it destroys our unity, but then it also reflects a lack of faith in our own lives. It's very easy for us to begin to complain and murmur when we try to walk together as a body. It is so easy. We all probably complain this week. Some of us, we live off complaining. I mean, that's how we thrive. That's what we do when we get around people. We just want somebody we can complain to. But Paul urges us, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Well, does this mean we're to become doormats? No, not necessarily. We should be reasonable in our expectations of others and what they might ask us to do. But we do need to be humble and recognize others more significant than ourselves, right? That's what he's also urged us to do. And so it doesn't mean we become doormats necessarily. We should be all be reasonable people. But we don't respond in complaining or even to others when we've been asked to do something we might not necessarily want to do. Uh, just a final thing about this this command from Paul. It is an imperative. Do all things. It's comprehensive. And the reason is, is because we don't know what life may bring. You see, Paul's not, well, in this situation, do that without complaining. No, that's not the application. The application is do all things without grumbling and complaining. You don't know what might arise in your life. And so you must walk with the Spirit in such a way that when something surprising comes that you didn't expect and wouldn't prefer, you still are resolved to trust God that He is sovereignly watching over your life and doing all things for you. All things for your good. A situation came up like this just within the last couple of weeks with some people in our body. As many of you know, Derwood and Chris Powell. Mr. Derwood, just within the last couple of weeks, was put on hospice care at his home. And so he's been on hospice care, and, and he starts improving. But then all of a sudden, Miss Chris, his wife, who has been working tirelessly to take care of him, comes down with pneumonia and staph infection. And she has to be in the hospital and can't have many people come visit her. 
been the one who's been caring for Mr. Durwood. They've been married for over 60 years. And yet while he's on hospice care, she's had to be in the hospital for the last week. What's surprising is now Mr. Durwood's doing better. He's going up to the hospital to visit her, and she's in hospital bed with pneumonia. And so they didn't expect that. They can't control it. And just like what happened in their lives, there are things in our lives that come up that we can't control. The kids wet the bed. They throw up all over the place. Everything goes wrong in one day. That's life, isn't it? And this is the command in the midst of that. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. You see, we accept it as the will of God, that God is sanctifying us in some way through all the circumstances that come up in our lives. So do all things. But the the thing that Paul gives us, the thing that we can hold on to as bringing joy to us is that in doing all things without grumbling or complaining, Paul says, you may become blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and you will shine as lights in the world. The idea of blameless and innocent is that the world can't bring accurate accusation against you. So morally, they can't accuse you of lots of things. It doesn't mean we'll please everyone, though we should try to be a peaceful people. But there should be little that they can really bring against you. And so we're blameless and innocent before people. I think the workplace is a great place to live this out. You sometimes have unreasonable expectations set on you. And your ability to respond to those expectations with patience, with grace, and with a willingness to work hard can quickly display the fruit of God's Spirit. And so the workplace is a great place where you can be resolved not to complain, not to murmur, but to work hard and to do so peacefully. And then this phrase, you're blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is an interesting word. It's actually the word from which we get scoliosis. The word is scolios. And so what it's saying is that the world has corrupted, and we said this in Sunday school this morning, the world has twisted God's good design. And so what was straight, the world has made crooked. And so you, being blameless and innocent, are able to shine forth as lights in the world to show God's good design. You shine as lights in the world. That's the next phrase. As we, we are blameless and innocent, God allows us to shine forth showing who He is. This is a word that refers to all the luminaries in the sky, really. And during this time period, they did not have electricity like us. And so when they could not see anything, the stars, the luminaries, it gave light. We know that even in the Bible, we see people who use the, the stars, the luminaries, for direction, right? And by the looking up, they can know which direction to go. To walk. This is how some of the men were able to see Jesus after he was born, right? This might be an odd illustration, but I think of, you know, there's a lot of post-apocalyptic movies that are coming out these days. And when they have this, the world is just a desert, everything is. I think of a world in which it's complete darkness, but those who have knowledge of God are literally light. Literally light. 
see, this is what the phrase is saying, morally speaking and spiritually speaking, that all around us is darkness, but somehow in knowing God's word and knowing God's design for things, we are light to people. We show God's design to those who don't know it. So this is the promise that as we that as we live worthy of the gospel, as we do it joyfully, embracing all things, that we will be a light for the world, that we will show God's good design. But then also we're to live worthy of the gospel by holding fast to the word of truth, holding fast to the word faithfully. Look at these verses, verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The phrase can actually mean holding out the word of life. It can either mean holding fast to or holding out the word of life. And so you'll see the subpoints there are your life. First of all, it is the word of life. It's the word that has brought you life. It's the message of Christ, the gospel. Friends, it's simple, and sometimes its simplicity would cause us to think that we need more. But it's the gospel that has brought us life. It's the gospel that continues to sanctify us. That Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and in his death has achieved our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. And that we will be with God forever. This is the message of all life. It's the message that brings us life. But by, therefore by implication. It's also the message that brings others life. And so as we hold fast to that message. As we never depart from it. But just go deeper into it. At the same time we're holding it out for others. And saying trust Christ. Kiss Christ. And for Paul. Everything hinges on this. Because look what he says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. What he's saying is that if the people of Philippi somehow decide to depart from the gospel, the word of Christ, then the last day when they meet with Christ, they have forsook the gospel. They have forsaken the gospel and will not. See, what what happens, friends, is we don't get to rejoice over achieving our full salvation until the end. We don't do that now. None of us really, we can see fruit in each other's lives, but we can't. It won't be until then that we'll able to see the real product of our labor. This is what Paul's saying. For him, investing in the gospel and preaching the gospel to these people, it's his work, right? Men, we like seeing the finished product, don't we? We like the pride that goes along with that thing that we've just built and we see it completed. Well, that's what Paul desires, is that on the day of Christ, he sees the finished product. That the Philippians have labored until the end, have held fast to the gospel until the end, and now he sees them and they'll be with Christ all together forever. But the trouble is, That's not a rejoicing we can do until then. It's not a rejoicing we can do until then. And that is why it is all the more important that all of us hold fast to the word. Any of us at any point, if we seek to depart from this, could miss it. 
It's not that we lose our salvation. It's that we show that we were never truly among the body. This is a difficult thing, and we don't get to delve deeply into that topic this morning. But the important aspect is that you hold fast to the word, that you never depart from it. And in that, you will be able to rejoice fully in the end. Lastly, living worthy of the gospel requires us to serve sacrificially. To serve sacrificially. This is in verses 17 through 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's the picture Paul's giving. They would give an offering in the Old Testament, a meat offering. But then a drink offering had to be poured out beside of it. The drink offering was kind of like the finishing touches on the meat offering. And so what, what Paul seems to be saying is that if somehow I am being poured out, in other words, I'm suffering persecution and all these things so that your faith may go up, so that your faith may continue to grow, then I'm glad and I rejoice. If Paul is suffering so that the faith of the Philippians continue to grow, can continue to grow, then he says, I, I rejoice in that and you also should rejoice too. Here. Here's the picture to provide a couple of illustrations. Some of us will watch movies this week that have to do with the independence of America. We could speak of those who have gone to nations and gone to war knowing that they were making a sacrifice so that the rest of us can live in a sense of peace and freedom. This is a sacrifice they generally make joyfully and willingly, even up to giving their own lives so that we could live in freedom. Missionaries also provide a beautiful illustration of this. Many of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott and his four friends who were missionaries to the Wayodani Indians of Ecuador. These five men were killed in the process of trying to make contact with this tribe of Indians to share the gospel with them. But the interesting thing is the fruit brought about through their death. Elizabeth Elliott was the wife of Jim Elliott. And she wrote just a year after his death, a year after his death, that the mission field became more populated because of men and women inspired by the obedience of these men. Just a year after these men were killed, the, the mission field became repopulated, overpopulated because of people who were challenged to go, go to the nations to share the gospel. After two years, Elizabeth and another widow of the men built friendships with the members of the Wayodani tribe. And Bible translation quickly began in their language. And soon they would see the men who murdered their husbands confess faith in Christ. If you've seen the movie The End of the Spear, you'll see all of this played out in a, in a beautiful way. It's a really an inspiring movie to watch. One of the sons of these men became friends they would eventually share hotel rooms together with, it was the man who murdered his father, who killed his father, dealt the blow. But living worthy of the gospel means we serve sacrificially. Sometimes it will be you sacrificing so that someone else can bear fruit. If they thought there was joy, either way, 
whether it's you sacrificing or someone else sacrificing, it's all for the good of the body. And so there's joy in all of it. Sometimes, friends, we need to stay kind of in the background. Our name might not become known. The glory won't be for us. But this is what we do in the body. We serve sacrificially for the glory of Christ and for the good of one another. This will take a hit on our pride, on our self-advancement. But this is what the gospel has called us to do. Living worthy of the gospel. We must embrace all things joyfully. We must hold fast to the word faithfully. I wonder if any of you have tried to kind of get past the simplicity of the gospel. Just the simple message of the grace of Christ. Is that a message that you're holding out and you're trusting that this is the message by which God wants to save people? This is the invitation. If it's the word of life for us, then it's the word of life for all who are lost outside here. Have you trusted it, embraced it as the word of life for you and for others? And then are you serving sacrificially for the good of the body? As we've urged you many Sundays, if you're not involved in some specific aspect of service, at the local church. Friends, you don't have to ask if that's God's will. It's always God's will. Serving at a local church is God's design for you, His will. So I hope you trust it. We're going to pray. And I just want to give you time to ask yourself. I want you, you're welcome to stand and sing. But I do want you to ask, are you working out your salvation? I mean, is it strenuous? If you don't feel stretched, then you're probably not doing it. Is your Bible study deepening? Is your, are your relationships with others becoming deeper, other Christians and friends with unbelievers? We should have relationships with unbelievers in which we are trying to persuade, to love them for the sake of the gospel for Christ. And so I hope you'll be intentional with that. Lord, thank you for your grace to us.